Well, folks, starting tomorrow, pretty early for almost all of us, it's back to reality. Looking forward to it? Me neither. Me neither. I've, I've enjoyed these days. There have been some hiccups, but generally speaking, the picture that I had in my mind of our little family holiday celebration, the picture pretty much matched the reality. How about yours? Because we conjure up a picture, don't we? And the commercials certainly make an effort in that regard, right? There's string music playing, and everybody looks amazing, right? <laughs> clearly, everybody's last year's resolution to lose weight and get some work done has clearly paid off. Everybody looks great in these commercials. It seems that everybody has plenty of money in these commercials as well, right? Cars with red ribbons come driving out of the snow. I mean, it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Well, for most of us, most years, there's a distance between the ideal mental picture and what actually happened around the Thanksgiving table. And though that difference can go all the way from awkward to heartbreaking, depending on the particular year. A few years ago, I remember at a family, well, quite a few number of years ago, one of the rare times since... My family lived in Mexico. The entire extended family came together on Thanksgiving. And in that little season of our extended family's life, there was one topic that nobody should mention. Have you been to those meals? Like, we all know, but we're just not going to talk about it, right? We're going to have a good time together by avoiding this one thing. But I don't know if he had found something prior to our food and drink together or something, but we had one family member in particular with no filter whatsoever who kept bringing it up. I don't know how your family deals with it. Our family, we obviously, look at me, we love food, okay? And the way we dealt with it was we took turns praising various things on the Thanksgiving table, right? <laughs> the guy with two neurons over here would say something stupid, and like, oh my goodness, Hey, how about that turkey? It sure turned out great. What kind of turkey is this anyway? What did you do with it? And then he would subside and five minutes later stumble back into it again. So the mashed potatoes, the bread, it all took a turn in being praised. It's really just kind of a distraction for the awkwardness. Now, I've talked to some families, and I'm going to keep them in prayer already. Their picture looked absolutely nothing like what anyone imagined and nothing some families in our church have been through some things this weekend that nobody should have to endure. And that's, that's life. There's a picture of how things are going to work out, and then you run into reality. And what makes it difficult, almost always, what makes the difference between that ideal picture and what actually happened there's always one common factor. In fact, I talked a couple weeks ago to what I call a 1% leader. In his particular service organization, this guy had risen to the very, very, very top of his profession. And when I meet interesting people like that that do good work and hard work, I love to ask them one question. What's the best part and the worst part of your job? Just like that. Didn't even have to think about it. He said, same answer to both questions. Can you guess what he said? People. How did you know that? It's always people, isn't it? 
There's a picture of how life is going to work out, whether it's the holidays or the new job, and then there's the actual nitty-gritty reality. I love working with people who are new to local church ministry, whether it's here or I'm doing training somewhere, because there's this picture, I think, in pretty much everybody's mind that if you work at a local church, you primarily sit around and read the Bible and pray. And that is occasionally interrupted by people coming by to thank you for sitting there and reading your Bible and praying. And it's just this wonderful, idyllic world. And then about usually about two months in, people who are new in vocational ministry say something like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And guess what they're referring to? People, always. And nobody understood that better. And no one lived it more than Jesus. Jesus was literally in the thick of the human experience. Jesus, better than you, better than me, understood what I call the endless kaleidoscope of the human experience. And because of who Jesus was and the things that He said and the things that He could do, which were the very work, presence, and work, and Word of God on earth, Jesus was always being thronged by people. And hardly anyone ever came to say, thanks, you're doing a great job. Those people are like the people in your world. They are continually, chronically, sometimes heartbreakingly needy. Look with me in Luke chapter 5. We'll catch up to where we are. In our journey through the gospel of Luke, look, look with me, please, to the gospel of Luke, and we'll go to verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, Luke tells us, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And that's easy to read. But if you've ever seen leprosy, and certainly if you would have lived in that man's day, that description alone would have brought you up short. The Greek word that Luke uses here to describe leprosy actually could encompass Several skin diseases, but they all had this in common. They were all severe. They all went well below and beyond the skin. And the first thing that happened in a leper's world is his community, his day-to-day contact with anyone, including and especially his own family, was immediately cut off. In the ancient world, for several reasons, one of them hygienic, God had prescribed that if anyone had leprosy, they would be immediately cut off from the rest of the community. That's the only way in the ancient world to keep it from spreading. The Levitical law gives a sobering, terrible description of what happened to the leper. Listen. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he'll cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And what a social burden. They have a disfiguring, destructive disease that is slowly consuming your body and for the sake of everyone else and for the sake of it not spreading, you had to be deliberately disheveled. And whenever you came close to other people, you had to call out with what voice you might have left. If the disease had left you a voice, you had to warn them and tell them that you were unclean. It says, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. Here's the worst part. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
A lot of families know what it's like to have a sudden and terrible diagnosis because that symptom's not going away and things are getting worse. This was a walking death to whoever, whoever had leprosy. And Luke, remember, who is a physician, tells you about this episode in the life of Jesus. Jesus is in a city, and there is a man who is, did you notice his description? What is his physical condition on the day he met Jesus? He's full of leprosy. It's everywhere. He probably had gone beyond the point where he needed to verbally warn people. It was visible. It was consuming him. Right across the street, when I just started attending the church here, I met a young man from Mexico who became a really, really valuable volunteer minister in our early days of the Spanish ministry. He had visited and spent a great deal of time in one of the last so-called leper colonies on earth. And he told me what was worst about leprosy and most repulsive to the people who were visiting and tending to these people was not usually the leprosy itself, but because it killed nerve endings. And wherever the leprosy was, it eventually took all sensation of pain away. In those parts of their bodies, they suffered burns and wounds and cuts and all kinds of trouble because their bodies no longer warned them that they were hurting themselves. And it was like watching somebody decompose, he said, right in front of you. He asked me to go, and I'll just honestly tell you, I was grateful that the opportunity never arose to make that long journey into that trip. I'd be very afraid of what my face might betray, no matter what my will said I was there to do for those people. And Luke says, Jesus encountered a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And that tells me that in desperation, he's broken the rules. I would say he pushed his way through the crowd, but he probably didn't have to. He probably started saying, unclean, unclean, and people were shocked that he was in the city at all, and I guarantee you the crowd parted. And he got to do what hardly anyone got to do, to get up front with Jesus. Do you notice what he did? He fell face down in front of him and made not even a humble request. He just made a humble statement, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Look what Jesus does. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. He charged him to tell no one, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. That process would take about seven days, and Jesus' desire is that this man go through the ritual to make sure that he is publicly certified as clean so that he can get his whole life back. That's what Jesus does. He restores everything that sin and disease and the ruination of the world has taken from us. He may do it on earth, and he certainly will do it someday in heaven, but this is who Jesus is. And did you notice how Jesus chose to heal him? What did he do? He reached out and he what? He touched him. Did he have to do that? No, he didn't. Luke himself has told us that one day Jesus went to Peter's house and found his mother-in-law sick there, and he simply spoke to the disease and she was immediately healed. Why did Jesus touch the leper? 
See, the Levitical law said that if you touched anything that unclean, you yourself became ceremonially unclean. But Jesus did something that no one had done for that man perhaps in many years because leprosy proper is a slow-moving disease. And it's very likely that the hand of Jesus on his body was the first human touch he had had in a very, very long time. If you want to drive somebody crazy, all you have to do is isolate them from human contact. I spoke a while ago to a prison chaplain who in the course of his visits inside a state penitentiary hugged an inmate and this big, hard, strong man broke down and cried. And he said, no one has touched me in a caring, compassionate way in a long time. All the human contact in that man's life had been reduced to compliance to make him obey, to remind him that he was under authority, and he would move, stand, and speak only when it was proper to do so. Jesus is destroying every expectation in the crowd. He is not only entertaining an audience, he is compassionately healing the man and doing so purposefully in a very deliberate way. Jesus is not going to be unclean himself. He, on the contrary, is going to cleanse and heal this man and make everything right and direct him instead of solitude, direct him into the path back to complete social restoration. We're not entirely sure why Jesus sometimes did this, probably certainly wanted the man's life to get back to him, and he also probably wanted to tamp down the expectations that this was the main point of Jesus' ministry, but it didn't work. The man didn't cooperate. Verse 15 says, but now even more the report of him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. If you can for a minute, put yourself in a situation for Everyone in Orange County wants a personal audience with you. Would you enjoy that? And that almost everybody who wants your attention is going to need something? Doesn't that get a little tiresome? Do you have the one friend who only touches base when he needs something? You see a voicemail from him, I wonder what he needs now. You have these people in your life? Because it's never hello, it's never kind, it's never to help him, it's always never to help you, it's always about him. Jesus had multiplied thousands of people, and all they knew was this man can do anything he pleases. He can heal, restore, or fix, cleanse anything or anyone, and the crowds were after him. And then Luke closes his story with a surprising little verse, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, it said, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. See the picture? Whatever comes Jesus' way, he's in complete authority over it. The Word of God, the work of God, the diseases that come against the sons of men, anything and everything that rises in Jesus' life, He is in complete, absolute authority over it. This is what Luke has been showing you now for five and a half chapters. And then, in the middle of this dramatic cleansing that would have shocked the crowd, and humanly speaking, would have affected Jesus and 
apparently contrary to his wishes, made his reputation grew even further so that the crowds and the needs and the demands and the clamor got bigger and bigger and bigger. Luke tells you something that Jesus was always doing. What is it? He's going off to desolate places, to lonely places, and what is he doing? He's praying. Why do you think Luke put that verse just there at that point? Because this is God's Word. Divinely speaking, this is God's Word, and humanly speaking, this is Luke's gospel. God's perfect, and Luke isn't foolish. He's a powerful, beautiful, historically accurate writer. Why did Luke tell you after this particular cleansing, after this healing, that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray? This is the first time he's mentioned it, but as you keep walking through the Gospel of Luke with us, you're going to see that this is Luke, that's something that Luke always wants to show you. Look at these Bible verses. In fact, we can read a couple of them together. Read Luke 6.12 with me. The Bible says, In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Three chapters later, read 9.18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And finally, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Luke wants to see you, wants you to see that. In his account of the life of Jesus, he always wants you to see Jesus completely in charge, always doing exactly what God wants, having complete success in every challenge, no matter how hideous that arises against him, and what he is always doing is leaving the scene of that success, leaving that busyness, leaving that good work. He is going off by himself to pray. Why? I think this is why Luke told us this story, so that Jesus' disciples 2,000 years later would learn along with the first disciples simply this. Cross point, our love for people will never be stronger than our commitment to spend time alone with God. That's his strength. His strength for the crowd was found not from the crowd, but from his time alone with his father. Pretty basic, right? Pretty simple, and yet so crucial. The limit of my compassion for others is exactly the depth of my relationship with God. And I have to tell you, just as your fellow Christian and your fellow human being, not as a good thing, but as actually as a confession of sin. It's beyond weakness, it's sin. I routinely scrape the bottom of the depths of my compassion, my willingness, my kindness, because I'm out. I'm dry. And the reason I'm out and the reason I'm dry is I have not spent time alone with my Father, gaining from Him the things that only He can give me. Because I never meet with God where He needs anything from me. Have you noticed this? He's self-sufficient and perfectly pleased 
He never has contingency plans. He's always calm. He's always peaceful. He's always purposeful. He has things he wants me to do in obedience to him, but he needs absolutely nothing from me. And when I meet with him, he imparts to me, if I take the time to daily keep the appointment and keep my time with him, I'm remade. I'm reshaped. I'm filled up. If I go out in my own strength, and some of you have had to endure and experience what the end of my strength looks like, and it doesn't, have, it doesn't take long to get to the end of it. That's not the Father anymore. That's not the character of Jesus anymore. That's not the fruit of the Spirit, which is a biblical phrase that means the kind of life that God produces. I've been out on my own with a good to-do list, good plans, good ideas, filled with human cleverness, charging out into a tough world filled with needy people who invariably mess things up. Then I come home broken and disappointed because I wasn't able to rise to the occasion. Ever had this experience or am I just talking to myself this morning? This is what it is. Jesus wanted his disciples to know it. Hold your place, but go over to John 15, verse 5. These are words that Jesus said to his disciples very shortly before being arrested and murdered on the cross. John 15, verse 5. He said to his disciples this. He's using a word picture of where life and strength and fruitfulness comes from. Here's how it works for disciples. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do, what's it say? Nothing. Nothing. Where's the life come from? From him, not from me. And I told a group of men several months ago, this must be one of the verses in the Bible that I believe the least. Because what I actually believe always comes out in my behavior. Keep that in mind. What I say I believe is good enough, but my true belief always expresses itself without fail, eventually, not in what I say, but what, in I, what I actually do. And I must not believe what Jesus said when He said, you have to spend time with me, you have to abide in me, you have to be close to me. That is the kind of life that produces fruit, and Bruce, without me, you can do Nothing. And I must not believe it. My version must be this. Without Jesus, I can at least get started. (laughs) And invite Him to join the good work I'm doing when it gets beyond me. Anybody ever live like that? Lord, here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to do today. Bless me as I go. And it's a personal relationship. And sometimes I distinctly sense that the Father says, why are you going there? I'll be there, but I'm not going to help you there because I didn't want you to go there in the first place. I can't bless what I didn't tell you to do. And not a day in his life did Jesus ever lack the power, the guidance, and the fellowship with the Father. Listen, some of you have lives that are so challenging, so difficult, so incredibly demanding that I marvel and I learn much from you, that you live as Christians in the midst of all that chaos, all that pain, all that need. 
Your temptation may particularly be to say, in this season of life, I am so busy that I just can't find the time to be alone with God. May I gently suggest to you that the busiest man who ever walked the planet for the highest stakes always found the time to do it? See, if I get right down to what I actually believe, I don't know if you've ever had this experience in prayer, I'm praying, but inside there's an internal clock saying, a very busy day awaits. I need to get going and getting things done. Ben Patterson, a wonderful pastor, once said the problem with most Christians in prayer is they think the only thing that's happening when they're praying is simply that they're praying. Jesus knew better than that. That's why he insisted sometimes to the point that his disciples had to go find him because they had an agenda, they had a plan, the crowd was looking for Jesus to replicate the success of the previous day. And Mark's gospel tells us they found Jesus and the the disciples said to him, come on back, everybody wants more. And Jesus said, no, I've come to preach the good news and all the towns and villages, and that's exactly what he went to do. Where did he find that guidance? Where did he find that strength? He found it in his insistence on spending time alone with God. That's the measure of my discipleship. That's the measure of my usefulness. That's the measure of my fruitfulness to the Lord. Years ago, perhaps you've heard this, a wonderful Christian leader named Dr. Kent Keith wrote this, calls them the paradoxical commandments. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. The only way to do that It's time alone with the Father. See, it's a personal relationship. And if you're really going to spend time with Him, I'll close with this, you have to know when you're going to do it. I was looking through email and text messages a while ago. There's a wonderful family in this church who I I just think the world of. And I've known this guy for, gosh, probably 20 years. And I look through my records, email and text messages, We talked about getting together for over two years before we finally went to dinner. And you know why that was? As I looked at all the emails and the text messages, we had two years worth of this. We should get together. Yes, we should. That would be great. We would enjoy that. Hey, let me know when you can do that. Two months later, we really should get together. Yes, that would be great. Let me check with my wife and we'll tell you when we can do that. Four months later. Hey, you think we could find the time for us to get together? You know, that'd be great. Why don't we do that? This went on for about 27 months. You know what made the difference? 
one of us finally said, let's get together three Saturdays from now at five o'clock at this particular place. And guess what happened? There we were, laughing about the fact that we had discussed it and made a verbal mental value out of getting together for over two years. Because God is always available, you'll do the same thing with Him unless you make an appointment and determine to keep it. So when are you meeting with Him? See, it's a person. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's not a value that you're meeting with. It's an actual person. You're made in His image. You were actually made for that fellowship and that time together. But because it's a person, for most of us, it won't happen until there's a legitimate need and we come running to Him out of pain and need and fear. Then we'll keep the appointment spontaneously because He's always available. But strength isn't built there. The character of Christ and every good thing that God wants can be formed only in those moments, but that's not His plan and His desire. His desire is for you to spend time with Him, time with His Son, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and in the day-to-day with the crush of daily life and the unexpected pains and trials that that it brings that you be made more and more like Jesus, to have the strength and the guidance and everything you need when a new, eternally important challenge arises. So when are you going to keep that appointment? My simple invitation to you right now is to decide right now when you'll talk to your father later today and when you're going to meet with him tomorrow. And make it easy on yourself. Don't put it five minutes before you take the kids to school. Don't put it in a place where you know it'll be routinely interrupted by the day-to-day demands of life. Learn from Jesus. When can you get off by yourself? Whether it's your home, your living room, your office, some quiet place that you can find out in nature, when are you going to meet routinely on a daily basis with your Heavenly Father? Then keep that appointment. And from that, you're going to find that the time you have spent with Him will look just like Jesus does in this story. You'll have compassion, strength, healing, wisdom, and love enough for everyone that God sends into your life. Let's pray together. If you haven't done it already, could I invite you right now to make that decision and to tell God about it? God, I want my commitment to spend time with you, to be real, to show up, in a daily appointment. Here's when I'm meeting with you next. I want to be loving and kind and truthful in all the things that you want me to be when I deal with people, so I'm going to meet with you first. Here's the time I'm going to do it. Tell him about it. He'll listen. He loves you. Lord, I pray that as... I commit again, afresh, to uninterrupted time with you that nobody else needs to know about, that you would speak clearly to your children in this room, in this service, and invite them graciously and lovingly, as you always do, to keep the appointment. Help them to keep it. And Lord, there will be days because of our frailty that it'll be wonderful, and other times it'll be dry, and we'll wonder whether it made any difference at all. 
Help us to keep meeting with you. Lord Jesus, you're the true, you're the true vine. Give us your life. Teach us to spend time with you, to depend on you, to gain life and strength from you, and from that to produce the good fruit that you put us on earth to yield. We love you, and I pray, God, that you'd bless every single person, young and old, those who just met you and those who know you very, very well. Thank you that you can do this. You can meet with each of us later today and tomorrow. Bless those times. Make them sweet. Make them life-changing. Make that an experience that will shape us more and more into the character to reflect the person of your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name I pray. Amen.